0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org.
1: Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Scott, specifically. Thank you for that very special good morning. Um, welcome to Providence. Whether you had a great week or a really tough week, really glad that you've chosen to spend your Sunday with us. And, uh, I'm honored and glad to be hosting you all this morning. Um, Providence is a community formed around a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. And to that end, we teach from the scriptures each and every week that we might be able to know, worship, and obey Jesus. We are currently in our Advent season. No, series, not season. That's a whole different thing. Are we, what was I going to say? Oh, we're currently in our Advent series titled Tis the Season, Um, where we will reflect on the joy, the peace, the hope, and the love that can be offered in Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you today, would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, it's quite alright. There should be some located in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, You can take that and use it. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us today. Again, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior in the city of David, who is Christ for Lord. And this will be the sign from you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those who with he is pleased. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here, and uh, we hope... You enjoy yourself as we kick off our Advent. I did want to take a couple of moments and say thank you to Megan Gaston, and tons of people who, like Buddy the Elf, transformed the church here and uh, made it look amazing. And so, th- a big thank you to that, uh, to them, and to that group <coughs> of people who served up here all week long. Um, we're kicking off our Advent series, like Luke said in the Book of Luke, chapter number two. We're going to stand, stay in this verse basically uh, all Advent long, and this is the passage that extols the the angelic announcement, and within it is the Christian virtues that we see oftentimes uh, throughout culture. Through, you probably see them on Hallmark cards. You probably see them in decoration, namely the joy, hope, peace, and and love. And so we're going to talk about those. How does the incarnation teach us about the, the person of Jesus Christ embodying those virtues, and then what does it mean for us? Um, but before I pray, <clears throat> I do want to mention, uh, most of you already know this, but you know, this week has been a week for us as a church of mourning loss. Uh, one of our members, uh, Dane Plumley, this week went home to be with the Lord. And, and, you know, there are times when you go through something like this, when words really fail to express the, the feelings that you have or to answer questions or to bring even clarity. And uh, it's usually in those moments that it's best to be silent before the Lord. I've learned over the years even to counsel others in that way. But as it stands, I have the task to do the exact opposite this morning, which is to stand up and try to talk uh, for 45 minutes or so. And so before we jump into the passage this morning, I want to say this. It's appropriate and right for us as a church and as a congregation uh, to grieve together. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. There's a time to celebrate and a time to mourn. And for us, this week, and I'm sure for a little while, is going to be a time for us to mourn. But it's essential that we remember, and I have the responsibility and the privilege, to remind each other that as Christians, we do not mourn as those who have no hope, but we mourn with hope. Uh, Sunday morning is this day that's set aside every single week for us to get together and to remind one another of that very hope That we have in Jesus Christ, and we do it in various ways, but I I pray that I can do that faithfully this morning, and I want to pray for us, and I want to spend the rest of my time this morning um, doing my best by the grace of God to unpack what the Word of God tells us about the unfading hope that we have in the Lord Jesus, and so what I want to do is what I do every single week, which is to pray and to ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word, and in particular, to minister to us as each of us has need. You know, there's some needs that it's very obvious because it's on the surface, but there's also needs that none of us could see and we could never imagine that each of us have. And I want to pray that the Lord would minister to us this morning. And so if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. <coughs> Excuse me. Father, thank you so much that we can be sure that you hear us now because of not our own record But because we call upon you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we thank you that we get to come boldly. We ask now that you would minister to each of us, God, that you would comfort us as we grieve, that you'd bring us peace that surpasses understanding. And that also, my God, you would minister to us in the areas of our hearts that we need so deeply, some that are hidden from even us, my God, that through your word this morning you would Speak to us, meet us here as we wait upon you. And my God, we we pray most of all that it would be to the glory of your name this morning, our worship, our songs, preaching, that everything would bring glory to your name. And in so doing, it would bring the hope and joy to our hearts that your word has promised. We ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Let's read this passage one more time. Luke chapter two, <clears throat> starting in verse number eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, for they were filled with great fear. And I've mentioned this many times, but the experience of the shepherds had to have been dramatic. It's there in the silence of the fields, and then here comes an angel that shines the glory of the Lord out, almost like it's daytime now, and you know, they have just been merely looking over, attending a handful of their sheep. And then the angel begins to speak to them, which would have probably doubled up the ante of being freaked out. And he says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And this is the key line for us this morning that will be for all people. The birth of Jesus Christ is hope for all people. Verse 11 For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's very interesting the juxtaposition here between the the Son of God being born into the world and the sign of his birth being that he's in a manger, a feeding trough, and wrapped in swaddling cloths. But of course, we don't have time to talk about that in particular this morning. Verse 13 Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. So just up the ante now, one angel turns into a choir of angels. And they begin to sing, saying, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now I want to point out a question that maybe is not right on the surface. But Why is it that the shepherds here, because the Bible records that they immediately go, and they're excited, and they say, we've got to find out this site." They didn't ask the question, save us from what? You notice that they didn't stop and say, hey, we're doing okay out here in the, in the fields. Uh, what do you mean? Save us from what? what? Is there like a marauding army that we need to be saved from? It wasn't even a question. Now, I want to point out that this, this angelic message that comes, this sign, as it were, that comes to the shepherds, these are not the shepherds are not the only ones that receive this at the birth of Jesus. You see this with the magi, the wise men as well. They received this sign in the heavens. The shepherds are the most unique group, the most unique lot of those who get this angelic proclamation because they are not like the Pharisees well-versed in the Torah. Most likely they're illiterate men. Um, they're not like the wise men from the East who knew the astrology and understood the ancient scripts of multiple different nations to believe that the king of the Jews would be born on the basis of the astrological signs. No, the shepherds are probably just regular guys doing their thing, taking care of their flock to feed their families, and the angels show up to them. Now, obviously, to the Jewish shepherds, perhaps they did have some messianic thoughts in their minds. Perhaps their parents did a good job telling them about the Messiah that would come, but I think that it's much bigger than that. I believe the reason they didn't need any context for the hope of a Savior is because hope is woven into the very fabric of the human soul by God, and this was done At the very beginning, in the curse itself, most of our lives are spent year to year moving from place to place, oftentimes in hurried pace. The pace of life just gets uh, ramped up and pretty much stays at that place for a while. Even though our lives are a vapor, we go from jobs to school runs to extracurricular activities to social events to maybe the occasional vacation if we're we're, uh, lucky and blessed all of it's paced similarly, even if we try to slow it all down, it's, it's pretty quick, one thing after another, and through all of it, even though we may try to quell this sense, through all of it, the, our lives are marked by this sense that everything is not as it should be. Something is off about this world we live in. That's euphemistic. If you've lived for long enough, you start realizing just how off it really is. And we understand this intuitively, and I mean from a young age. You don't have to live very long to know that we understand this. Our parents, when we're young, they seek to help us orient uh, in this reality that we call life. They teach us things like how to distinguish between that which is bad and good, that which is right or wrong, that which is evil or righteous. And they teach us to do things like fight against urges and desires that that are within us, that are both obviously our own desires and also strangely foreign to us. Like when Paul the Apostle says in Romans seven, I don't do the things that I want to do and the things that I I end up uh, not wanting to do, I end up doing. And he has this grappling within his own soul. Why is it that I have these weird desires that are my desires and yet they feel foreign to me? You see, you don't have to be uh, the student of Gamaliel the Pharisee like Paul to understand that you could be five and understand that you understood it when you wanted those cookies so bad, even though you knew it wasn't good. And you know what I'm talking about? You're like, did you eat the cookies? I may have eaten one, but there's 15 gone, you know, and you look kind of green around the gills. You know, intuitively we know this, we feel this no matter how protective our parents and careful they may have been. They couldn't protect us from the fallen nature of this world that we inhabit, some of us sooner than others, but all of us in our time will be met with the sting of loss, pain, tears, mourning, even death. And we will all wake up in a haze from that first meeting that we have with suffering, stunned like a boxer that just got knocked out for the first time not hearing much of anything, just kind of a ringing in your ears, your corners yelling at you, trying to help you to shake it off. Well, that's like your parents and your loved ones when they surround you after this moment of suffering, and you see their mouths moving. They're very animated in their motions, but nothing's really registering because you can't make out the words because you're wondering what just happened. This has happened to us. If it hasn't happened to you, I hate to be the bearer of bad news but it always does. This meeting with suffering and fallenness brings us all the way back to the garden when our first parents experienced the effects of sin. I can't help but put myself as though I were watching through a window of our first parents as the curse was spoken to them, recited to them from God's mouth, and then they were ushered out of the garden into exile, away from the presence of God. The stunning experience that they would have had is perhaps the most prominent in all of world history, but even woven within that moment, if you remember, if you know your Bible, what's woven within the curse? The theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel was preached. God spoke to Eve and said, it's through the seed of the woman that I will crush the serpent's head. And there, I want to contend, there is the very hope that exists in all of us from the moment that we were born that word spoken by God for all of humanity is in us we both know the realities of sin but also we have this hope this longing for a savior and no one has to tell you saved from what because you know a savior will be will be born and he will reverse the curse of eden Advent is that one time each year. If Sunday is the one time each week, Advent's kind of that one time each year where the whole world prepares, even if they don't quite know why, to celebrate something that no human being can truly fathom. It is incomprehensible what you and I celebrate on Christmas morning. The birth of Jesus Christ, however trivialized the world seeks to make it, remains the most glorious, and the most far-reaching supernatural event in the history of the world. It is the breaking through of God into human history as a man. Think of this. God took on human flesh. The second person of the Trinity took on human flesh, entered the fallen world itself, subjected himself to all that that fallen world had to offer, and yet without sin, gave himself up for us and rose again. This action of the incarnation, like nothing else before it, was the inauguration of a newfounded hope for all the world. That's what the angels are talking about. And I say the whole world because that's the actual message. It'll be for all the people. Although he speaks to Jewish shepherds, the angels are clear about this. Unto you is born this day a Savior, Christ the Lord. You see, the shepherds needed no context, not because they were Torah scholars. They needed no context because God had put this hope in their hearts through the generations. It was the hope of their ancestors. They knew it deeply, intuitively. We sing about this. You know, I didn't even know that Kyle was actually going to sing the song this morning, but I want you to think about how this idea, this theological underpinning of Christian hope is woven into the old hymns of Christmas. I'll read to you the first verse of O Holy Night. It says this. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Listen to this line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. In sin and in error, the world's been pining for a long time. I want you to put yourself at right at the crux of Jesus' birth. You got 4,000 years of sin, error, and longing for something to change. Then this line. Till he appears and the soul felt its worth. This is deeply Christian theology. Something happens when we see Christ as he is. Both we understand who he is as Lord, and we understand ourselves rightly. This goes all the way back to Moses. Moses cannot understand himself until he meets the I am who I am. And then all of his identity gets wrapped up into who God is. And this is true of when Christ appears, we have self-worth, because we understand who we truly are. Sons and daughters of God being brought back. Now, of course, there's an eschatological hope with this. First John tells us that one day we'll see him, and when we see him as he truly is, we'll be made like him. Then this last line is the one I want to mention before we move on. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. This exhausted world has a thrill of, oh, maybe... Something's going to change. And then this is the line, For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Christmas morning was the turning point of the first advent of a new kingdom being inaugurated that you and I get to experience. Now it's a kingdom in part because we have a second advent we're still waiting for. But what is true after the first advent is so unmistakably glorious, so unbelievably gracious that there's no way we could do sermon series on it for our whole lives. Yeah. Christ is exactly who the angels promised. His first advent dealt with sin, filled us with his spirit, freed us from self salvation techniques through our own dead works that cannot save. He was crowned king of kings. He was the fulfillment of humanity's hope that had existed Whether Jewish or non-Jewish, it was intrinsic within the human heart because God had placed it there in the garden. And that hope, the fulfillment of that hope, broke through that night in a manger over 2,000 years ago. The significance of the birth of Christ as the fulfillment of the promise of a Savior is manifested not only in how the heavenly host respond, but I want you to remember how the powers of darkness responded. Angels broke out in song. Herod began to plot to kill. Every bit of the cosmology of the universe knew who Jesus was. They knew this moment changed the world. Now, what do we do with this? How should we then live? I want to read one of the most well-known famous passages from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter number eight. I'm going to start in verse 18. You could turn there with me. Um, This is Paul speaking about hope and i'm going to read a little bit and stop because it's it's only uh, i think like 9 verses but there's lots that paul has to say here. Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 18. Paul says for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now i'm going to address that at the very end but what a statement. There's no suffering that you and I can experience on this side that's worthy of comparing with the glory that Christ has prepared for us. Something about what you and I are headed towards is so glorious that Paul, having just seen it through a glass dimly, says no suffering's worthy to be in the conversation. And Paul's a man who suffered, we can agree. Let's keep going though. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Ah, so there's this hope that doesn't only exist in the human heart, but all of creation seems to be even, not human, but all of creation seems to be longing for something, desiring something. Because even the environment itself was under a curse. Do you remember when God spoke to Adam? He said, you will, by the sweat of your brow, eat of the bread of the ground, meaning that the earth is no longer going to work with you, it's going to work against you, thorns and thistles. And I joked with the nine, and I said, could you imagine what mowing your lawn would be like if it ground worked with you. You know, I'm excited about that future. I do mourn that we are where we are now, but all of creation underneath this futility, listen to verse 20 for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, who subjected it, God subjected the creation to futility as a part of the curse. And then he says this in hope there's the word, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Something about the work of Jesus Christ will not only be redemptive for you and I, but it's going to be redemptive for the cosmos. Everything will come out from underneath this futility. All of creation will be restored. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says that if you ever wonder why there are storms, if you ever wonder why there are earthquakes, if you ever that Paul explains this, not like the Greeks used to, that the pagan gods were throwing down their lightning bolts in storms or were you know, wrestling uh, each other and you know, slamming each other down and there an earthquake would happen. Uh, no, Paul explains it by saying all the whole of creation groans waiting with the pains of childbirth until now, longing for the second advent listen to this line, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You have to love Paul because he doesn't say that you and I are not suffering. He doesn't say that you and I don't groan inwardly. It's just the creation, you know, but we're all good. Paul says, no, you and I, even though we have the first fruits of the spirit, we have the taste of the kingdom, even though the first advent has happened and we know that we're forgiven of our sins, that we're not underneath the law, but we're under grace. The wonders of the new kingdom, our new covenant are already lavished upon us. But Paul acknowledges we're not yet there. And so we still groan too. You gotta love Paul because he is not the kind of person that says, no, you have no right to ever be sad. You have no right to ever cry. You have no right because you have Jesus. You have to be happy, you know. You, gotta be, you always have to be glass half full or glass fully full. And you guys know who I'm talking about, you know, that sometimes you have those friends that are just uh, un- unwitting, unwilling to let you ever be sad, and you, you know, want to punch them sometimes. It's tough. They're quick to tell you. You have no reason to grieve. Just think how about, how, you know, it's always this. It, how, how much worse could it have been, you know? You're know, like, well, thanks. You know, I appreciate that. Paul says, no, we groan inwardly. He says, it's important that Christians acknowledge the fallenness of the world so that not only will they be more effective in proclaiming the gospel that redeems us, but have hope in their hearts for our Savior who will return for us. And then he goes on, and these are the two verses that he specifically speaks about the hope. For in this, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The world often mocks Christians as wishful thinkers. You know, Karl Marx famously, uh, infamously called religion, particularly Christianity, the opiate of the masses. You know, it's just for people who can't deal with the reality of life, and so they have these wishful thinking to keep them in the dark about the realities of the difficult world. The reason that this lands on a lot of people is because there is such a thing as just being a wishful thinker. There's such a thing as being completely oblivious and wanting to stay that way so that you don't have to suffer. There's a way to keep suffering at arm's length because you don't want to address it. But I just want to tell you, this Paul is telling us is not the Christian hope. That's not what Christians do. Pastorally, I I have tried to counsel people over and over. In the fog of current present suffering, the most important thing for the Christian to do is to focus on the things that they know to be true. To focus on the things they know to be true and to run there. And I say this, uh, there's two reasons behind this. The first is that in hardship, the enemy always seeks an opportunity for deception. This is what the Bible would tell, tell us that He waits for an opportune moment, for an opportune time. Weakness, suffering, hardship is that opportune time. And oftentimes what we'll do is because we're struggling maybe with depression or we're struggling with some, you know, we're in the fog of the suffering. We try to figure out our lives in those moments. And I I think it's probably the most unwise thing that you can do in the same way that when, when our heart surgeon is having their worst moment in their lives, we don't want them doing heart surgery on us. You know, it's like, hey, maybe like we could, I'll let the intern have a crack at it, but he doesn't seem stable, you know? But we try to do heart surgery on ourselves when we're in our darkest moments. And here's why. Because we know something's wrong and we don't like the way it feels, so we just try to get in there and get after it ourselves. And we do end up doing a lot more harm than good. So you focus on the most rock-solid truths in your life as a safe harbor, the rock of ages. What is the Advent? The Advent is a historical fact. Well, We'll get to that in a minute. But secondarily, by doing so, it provides the basis for the Christian hope. Because the Christian hope is not just wishful thinking. It's rooted somewhere. When the Christian says, we hope for a good future, it's not the same as just anybody saying, I hope that tomorrow's good. Without Christ, without the the rock-solid historical first advent of Jesus Christ, hope for a good future is uncertain wishful thinking at best. But I want you to understand this, friends. Friends. The first advent of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ, is as certain as every major political, historical birth and life that you have ever read in your history books. As much as we know that Abraham Lincoln was at Gettysburg and read the Gettysburg Address, we know Jesus Christ was born at Bethlehem. It is historical fact from people that absolutely wish it weren't, but they must admit Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The crucifixion is as well documented. (laughs) And listen to me, even the miraculous resurrection is more well documented than some of the histories that you and I constantly have been taught our whole lives. There's more records of Christ raised from the dead than some crazy battles that we have talked about. I'm not even saying those battles didn't exist. What I'm saying is Christian hope is rooted in reality. Jesus really did live. He really did die. He really did raise from the grave. Christian hope is rooted somewhere. When the Christian says, I hope for the good future, we don't do so just willy-nilly because we don't want to deal with our suffering or the potential of suffering. No, we do so on the basis of the goodness of our God, his character, and on the basis of the promises that he has kept, namely the promise of a savior in Jesus Christ, and on the basis of the promises that he has made. We go backwards because if we just look forward many of us wouldn't take another step because it looks dark paul says hope is not what you see or else it would not be hope because if you look forward many times when you suffer all you see is more of it and you would never take another step if you didn't have the moment when you looked backwards and you saw the faithfulness of god why do you think the bible's filled with all these stories about hardship and suffering and the saints going and then God being victorious it's so that we can see he has done it before and he'll do it again and because he's prom, he's promised us a savior and he fulfilled it in Jesus Christ now we can have hope that he will continue to fulfill what he promises and here's what I want to point out what does Paul tell us that he promises well a couple things full redemption of this fallen world not just personal redemption not just you and i being redeemed although isn't that glorious enough <laughs> not just spiritual redemption even our bodies you know we were talking uh in the office beforehand about getting older and like how easy it is to like pull every muscle you have when you're just doing like basic functions paul promises full bodily redemption glorified bodies this physical body and when you, when you read Romans 8, he's saying all of the cosmos will be redeemed and restored. That's the promise. And then I want to point out verse 18, and he promises glory beyond consideration. Glory that you and I could not imagine if we sat and meditated for weeks. Glory that when we look back at our suffering, we will count it not worthy to compare. What kind of people should we be in light of this? What does it mean to be hopeful people? Paul's wisdom here seems so profound. He tells us in this last verse, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, waiting patiently on God is the mark of the true Christian. Now that may sound dull to you. You may be thinking like, yeah, okay. That's not exactly what I thought you were going to say. But hear me, if you've been a Christian for long enough, and and if you're a younger Christian, then I'm encouraging you with these words. Much of your Christian life, if you really survey it, is you waiting upon God patiently to act and to move. And we do that, and I'll speak for myself. I did it at the nine too, because I'm not trying to project upon you my own failures, but let me just tell you, and we do that with varying degrees of success. And by that, I mean, I don't wait well. But I'll tell you, much of the trouble that I get into in my life is because I don't wait upon the Lord well, patiently. But I look for exit points when I find myself in rooms with no doors, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put in the fiery furnace. And I'll just tell you, you know, the fourth man shows up for them. They they trust the Lord, and they I'd be looking, running around like I picture myself there, and I'm like, is there a tunnel? Is there a cave? Is there some sort of exit? You know, I'm thinking of like my old cartoons. Are there keys somewhere that are stashed? You know, you you got to run around in this room. And oftentimes, as an allegory in our lives, when we have to wait upon the Lord, our frenetic activity gets us into trouble. But much of the Christian life is this waiting, patient waiting. And what do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean inactivity. waiting upon the Lord patiently means every single day walking in obedience. And in that, and part of that obedience is repenting of sin when we fall short and putting faith back in Jesus. It's all the mundane things like loving your spouse well and loving your kids well and loving your neighbor as yourself, like being generous and repenting of your selfishness and walking in sacrifice. And it's all of those things. That's what waiting upon the Lord patiently means. But it means doing that when you feel like you can't take another step sometimes when you feel like the sacrifice isn't reciprocal, when you're asking God for justice because you feel like there's a lot of injustice, you're asking God for comfort when you feel really uncomfortable. You see, that's all waiting upon God to do things that you and I can't do. When you're praying for your children, for God to change their hearts and their minds about things that you can't change their minds, you start getting older and they start getting opinions and most of them are bad opinions and uninformed opinions. And, and when you tell them that they're uninformed opinions, it makes them more angry and they, they develop some more opinions that are worse. And you realize that as these young children that you've been raising are growing up, they, they begin to, well, they begin to be a, a mirror to you, a reminder to you that you can't control that. And what you have to have is God. And you're waiting upon the Lord patiently that he might move. And man, can there be some squirrely things that happen when you don't wait. Matthew Henry wrote this of this passage, and it's a little bit long, but I feel like it was very good. He says this, this is the adoption manifested before all the world, angels and men. Now we are the sons of God, but it does not yet appear to be so. The honor is now clouded, but then God will publicly own all of his children one day. The deed of adoption, which is now written, signed, and sealed, will that day be recognized, proclaimed, and published. As Christ was, so the saints will be. Declared to be the sons of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It will then be put past dispute. It is the adoption perfected and completed. The children of God have bodies as well as souls. And until those bodies are brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God, their adoption is not complete. But then it will be complete. When the captain of our salvation shall bring many sons to glory, this is what we should expect. In hope of which our flesh, it's the hope in which our flesh rests. All the days of our appointed time we are waiting until this change shall come. When he shall call and we shall answer, he will have a desire to work He will be healed of a desire to enjoy the work of his hands. Our happiness is not in our present possession. We are saved by hope. In this, as in other things, God has made our present state a state of trial. Our reward remains out of sight. Those that deal with God must deal with him on one condition alone, trust it is acknowledged that one of the principal graces of the Christian is hope, which necessarily implies that a good thing is coming. This is the object of that hope. If faith respects the promise, hope respects the thing promised. Faith is the evidence. Hope is the expectation of the things not seen. Faith is the mother of hope, and we do with patience wait. In hoping for this glory, we have need of patience to bear the suffering we meet with in the way, the delays of what's coming. Our way is rough and long, but he that shall come for us will come for us, and he will not tarry. And therefore, though he seem to tarry, it becomes us as his children to wait for him. That last line, our way is rough and long, but he that shall come for us will come for us, and he will not tarry. And therefore, although he seems that he's tarrying, it becomes us as children to wait patiently for him. i close with this. Hope is one of the primary Christian dispositions that ought to shape us and shape our everyday life. Although we live in a fallen world, we and we're going to expect hardship, we can still be hopeful people because the character of him who promised us is sure and good. Whether the arc of our storyline from the moment that we begin suffering to the moment that the redemption is shown is a short time or a long time, he has promised us that it will turn out for our good. And the basis of this hope is not wishful thinking, But this morning, I bring to your mind the first advent, the historical fact that Jesus was born, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and he is alive. And that is the basis for your hope through trial. So this morning, like the bright star that led the wise men to Bethlehem, or the angelic song that broke through the shepherds in the field at night, I pray that this is a beacon of light shining to you to remind you, unto you, unto us, a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. And so in our trial today at Providence, it becomes us as children to wait patiently for him because he will come to us. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that your word has promised us so many good things. And I thank you that we have a basis through which we can hope. God, I pray now that you would comfort those who mourn in the room with the loss of a friend. We pray for the family, my God, that you might. Holy Spirit, comfort them. Bring peace that surpasses understanding. And for us who are here, we ask, my God, that you would shape us with a a hope that is not rooted in a desire to isolate ourselves from hurt, to be blissfully ignorant, but a hope that is rooted in truth. Help us be purveyors of that hope. But first and foremost, my God, help us be recipients. As we take of your supper, we pray that you would help us to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.